Hi, welcome back. We're going to get on to part two, the final part of Children of the Corn. Um, this is where it starts to get less sort of social horror and more sort of horror horror. Um, I It's been so long since I've read this, I couldn't possibly tell you what happens in it. So I think you and I are both going to get scared at the same time, okay? Um, okay, without further ado, let's get started. That's a fantastic piece of workmanship, he said. It's hideous, she said in a flat, strained voice. Throw it out. Vicky, the police might want to see it. Why? Well, I don't know why. Maybe throw it out. Will you please do that for me? I don't want it in the car. I'll put it in back. And as soon as we see the cops, we'll get rid of it one way or the other. I promise, okay? Oh, do whatever you want with it, she shouted at him. You will anyway. Troubled, he threw the thing in back, where it landed on a pile of clothes. Its corn kernel eyes stared raptly at the T-Bird's dome light. He pulled out again, gravel splurting from beneath the tyres. We'll give the body and everything that was in the suitcase to the cops, he promised. Then we'll be shut of it. Vicky didn't answer. She was looking at her hands. A mile further on, the endless cornfields drew away from the road, showing farmhouses and outbuildings. In one yard, they saw dirty chickens pecking listlessly at the soil. There were faded cola and chewing gum ads on the roofs of barns. They passed a tall billboard that said, Only Jesus saves. They passed a cafe with a Conoco gas island, but Bert decided to go on into the centre of town if there was one. If not, they could come back to the cafe. It only occurred to him after they had passed it that the parking lot had been empty except for a dirty old pickup that had looked like it was sitting on two flat tyres. Vicky suddenly began to laugh, a high giggling sound that struck Bert as being dangerously close to hysteria. What's so funny? The signs, she said, gasping and hiccuping. Haven't you been reading them? When they called this the Bible Belt, they sure weren't kidding. Oh lordy, there's another bunch. Another bunch of hysterical laughter escaped her and she clapped both hands over her mouth. Each sign only had one word. They were leaning on whitewashed sticks that had been implanted in the sandy shoulder long ago by the looks. The whitewash was flaked and faded. They were coming up at 80 foot intervals and Bert read, A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They only forgot one thing, Vicky said, still giggling helplessly. What? Bert asked, frowning. Burma shave. She held a knuckled fist against her open mouth to keep in the laughter, but her semi-hysterical giggles flowed around it like effervescent ginger ale bubbles. Vicky, are you alright? I will be, just as soon as we're a thousand miles away from here in sunny, sinful California with the Rockies between us and Nebraska. Another group of signs came up and they read them silently. Take this and eat, saith the Lord God. Now why, Bert thought, should I immediately associate that indefinite pronoun with corn? Isn't that what they say when they give you communion? It had been so long since he had been to church that he really couldn't remember. He wouldn't be surprised if they used cornbread for holy wafer around these parts. He opened his mouth to tell Vicky that, and then thought better of it. They breasted a gentle rise, and there was Gatlin below them, all three blocks of it, looking like a set from a movie about the Depression. There'll be a constable, Bert said, and wondered why the sight of that hick, one timetable town dozing in the sun should have brought a lump of dread into his throat. They passed a speed sign proclaiming that no more than 30 was now in order, and another sign, rust-flecked, which said, You are now entering Gatlin, nicest little town in Nebraska, or anywhere else. Pop 54... Pop 4531. Dusty elms stood on both sides of the road, most of them diseased. 
They passed the Gatlin Lumberyard and a 76 gas station, where the price signs swung slowly in a hot where the price signs swung slowly in a hot noon breeze. Reg 35.9, high test 38.9, and another which said high truckers diesel fuel around back. They crossed Elm Street, then Birch Street, and came up on the town square. The houses lining the streets were plain wood with screen porches, angular and functional. The lawns were yellow and dispirited. Up ahead, a mongrel dog walked slowly out into the middle of Maple Street, stood looking at them for a moment, then lay down in the road with its nose on its paws. Stop, Ricky said. Stop right here. Bert pulled obediently to the curb. Turn around. Let's take that body to Grand Island. That's not too far, is it? Let's do that. Vicky, what's wrong? What do you mean, what's wrong? She asked, her voice rising thinly. This town is empty, Bert. There's nobody here but us. Can't you feel that? He had felt something, and still felt it, but it just seems that way, he said. But it sure is a one-hydrant town. Probably all up in the square, having a bake sale or a bingo game. There's no one here. She said the words with a queer, strained emphasis. Didn't you see that 76 station back there? Sure, by the lumberyard. So what? His mind was elsewhere, listening to the dull buzz of a cicada burrowing into one of the nearby elms. He could smell corn, dusty roses, and fertilizer, of course. For the first time, they were off the turnpike and in a town. A town in a state he had never been in before, although he had flown over it from time to time in United Airlines 747s, and somehow it felt all wrong but all right. Somewhere up ahead there'd be a drugstore with a soda fountain, a movie theatre named The Bijou, a school named after JFK. But the prices said 35.9 for regular and 38.9 for high octane. Now how long has it been since anyone in this country has paid those prices? At least four years, he admitted, but Vicky, we're right in town, Bert, and there's not a car. Not one car. Grand Island is 70 miles away. It would look funny if we took him there. I don't care. Look, let's just drive up to the courthouse and- No! There, damn it, there. Why our marriage is falling apart, in a nutshell. No, I won't. No, sir. And furthermore, I'll hold my breath till I turn blue if you don't let me have my way. Vicky, he said. I want to get out of here, Bert. Vicky, listen to me. Turn around. Let's go. Vicky, will you stop a minute? I'll stop when we're driving the other way. Now let's go. We have a dead child in the trunk of our car, he roared at her, and took a distinct pleasure at the way she flinched, the way her face crumbled. In a slightly lower voice, he went on. His throat was cut, and he was shoved out into the road, and I ran him over. Now I'm going to drive up to the courthouse, or whatever they have here, and I'm going to report it. If you want to start walking towards the pike, go to it. I'll pick you up. But don't tell me to turn around and drive 70 miles to Grand Island like we had nothing in the trunk but a bag of garbage. He happens to be some mother's son, and I'm going to report it before whoever killed him gets over the hills and far away. You bastard, she said crying. What am I doing with you? I don't know, he said. I don't know anymore. But the situation can be remedied, Vicky. He pulled away from the curb. The dog lifted its head at the brief squeal of tyres, and then lowered it to its paws again. They drove the remaining block to the square. At the corner of Main and Pleasant, Main Street split in two. There actually was a town square, a grassy park with a bandstand in the middle. On the other end, where Main Street became one again, there were two official-looking buildings. Bert could make out the lettering on one. Gatlin Municipal Centre. That's it, he said. Vicky said nothing. Halfway up the square, Bert pulled over again. They were beside a lunchroom, the Gatlin Bar and Grill. Where are you going? Vicky asked with alarm as he opened his door. Find out where everyone is. Sign in the window there says open. You're not going to leave me here alone. So come. What's stopping you? 
She unlocked her door and stepped out as he crossed in front of the car. He saw how pale her face was and felt an instant of pity. Hopeless pity. Do you hear it? She asked as he joined her. Hear what? The nothing. No cars, no people, no tractors, nothing. And then, from a block over, they heard the high and joyous laughter of children. I hear kids, he said. Don't you? She looked at him, troubled. He opened the lunchroom door and stepped into dry, antiseptic heat. The floor was dusty. The sheen on the chrome was dull. The wooden blinds of the ceiling fans stood still. Empty tables, empty counter stools. But the mirror behind the counter had been shattered, and there was something else. In a moment he had it. All the beer taps had been broken off. They lay along the counter like bizarre party flavours. Vicky's voice was gay and near to breaking. Sure, ask anyone. Pardon me, sir, but could you tell me? Oh, shut up. But his voice was dull and without force. They were standing in a bar of dusty sunlight that fell through the lunchroom's big plate glass window, and again he had that feeling of being watched, and he thought of the boy they had in their trunk, and of the high laughter of children. A phrase came to him for no reason, a legal-sounding phrase, and it began to repeat mystically in his mind. Sight unseen, sight unseen, sight unseen. His eyes travelled over the age-yellowed cards, thumb-tacked up behind the counter. Cheeseburg, 35 cents. World's Best Joe, 10 cents. Strawberry Rhubarb Pie, 25 cents. Today's special ham and red-eye gravy with mashed pot, 80 cents. How long since he had seen lunchroom prices like that? Vicky had the answer. Look at this, she said shrilly. She was pointing at the camera on the wall. They've been at that supper for 12 years, I guess. She uttered a grinding laugh. He walked over. The picture showed two boys swimming in a pond while a cute little dog carried off their clothes. Below the picture was the legend, Compliments of Gatlin Lumber and Hardware. You break em, we fix em. The month on view was August 1964. I don't understand, he faltered, but I'm sure. You're sure, she cried hysterically. Sure you're sure. That's part of your trouble, Bert. You've spent your whole life being sure. He turned back to the door and she came after him. Where are you going? To the municipal centre. But why do you have to be so stubborn? You know something's wrong here. Can't you just admit it? I'm not being stubborn. I just want to get shut of what's in that trunk. They stepped out onto the sidewalk, and Bert was struck afresh with the town's silence and with the smell of fertiliser. Somehow you never thought of that smell when you buttered an ear and salted it and bit in. Compliments of the sun, rain, and all sorts of man-made phosphates, and a good, healthy dose of cow shit. But somehow this smell was different from the one he had grown up with in rural upstate New York. You could say whatever you wanted to about organic fertiliser, but there was something almost fragrant about it when the spreader was laying it down in the fields. Not one of your great perfumes, God no, but when the late afternoon spring breeze would pick up and waft it over the freshly turned fields, it was a smell with good associations. It meant winter was over for good, it meant that school doors were going to bang closed in six weeks or so and spill everyone out into summer. It was a smell tied irrevocably in his mind with other aromas that were perfume. Timothy grass, clover, fresh earth, hollyhocks, dogwood. But they must do something different out here, he thought. The smell was close, but not the same. There was a sickish sweet undertone, almost a death smell. As a medical orderly in Vietnam, he had become well versed in that smell. Vicky was sitting quietly in the car, holding the corn crucifix in her lap and staring at it in a rapt way Bert didn't like. Put that thing down, he said. No, she said without looking up. You play your games and I'll play mine. He put the car in gear and drove up to the corner. 
a dead stoplight hung overhead, swinging in a faint breeze. To the left was a neat white church. The grass was cut. Neatly cut flowers grew beside the flagged path up to the door. Bert pulled over. What are you doing? I'm going to go in and take a look, Bert said. It's the only place in town that looks as if there hasn't ten years dust on it. And look at the sermon board. She looked. Neatly pegged white letters under glass read, The Power and Grace of He Who Walks Behind the Rose. The date was the 27th of July, 1976, the Sunday before. He Who Walks Behind the Rose, Bert said, turning off the ignition. One of 9,000 names of God only used in Nebraska, I guess. Coming? She didn't smile. I'm not going in with you. Fine, whatever you want. I haven't been in a church since I left home, and I don't want to be in this church, and I don't want to be in this town, Bert. I'm scared out of my mind. Can't we just go? I'll only be a minute. I've got my keys, Bert. If you're not back in five minutes, I'll just drive away and leave you here. Now just wait a minute, lady. That's what I'm going to do. Unless you want to assault me like a common mugger and take my keys, I suppose you could do that. But you don't think I will? No. Her purse was on the seat between them. He snatched it up. She screamed and grabbed for the shoulder strap. He pulled it out of her reach. Not bothering to dig, he simply turned the bag upside down and let everything fall out. Her keyring glittered amid tissues, cosmetics, change, old shopping lists. She lunged for it, but he beat her again and put the keys in his own pocket. You didn't have to do that, she said, crying. Give them to me. No, he said, and gave her a hard, meaningless grin. No way. Please, Bert, I'm scared. She held her hand out, pleading now. You'd wait two minutes and decide that was long enough. I wouldn't, and then you'd drive off laughing and saying to yourself, that'll teach Bert to cross me when I want something. Hasn't that pretty much been your motto during our married life? That'll teach Bert to cross me. He got out of the car. Please, Bert, she screamed, sliding across the seat. Listen, I know, we'll drive out of town and call from a phone booth, okay? I've got all kinds of change, I just, we can... Don't leave me alone, Bert, don't leave me out here alone! He slammed the door on her cry and then leaned against the side of the T-Bird for a moment, thumbs up against his closed eyes. She was pounding on the driver's side window and calling his name. She was going to make a wonderful impression when he finally found someone in authority to take charge of the kid's body, oh yes. He turned and walked up the flagstone path to the church doors. Two or three minutes, just a look around, and he would be back out. Probably the door wasn't even unlocked. But it pushed in easily on silent, well-oiled hinges, reverently oiled, he thought, and that seemed funny for no really good reason. And he stepped into a vestibule so cool it was almost chilly. It took his eyes a moment to adjust to the dimness. The first thing he noticed was a pile of wooden letters in the far corner, dusty and jumbled indifferently together. He went to them, curious. They looked as old and unforgotten as the calendar in the bar and grill, unlike the rest of the vestibule, which was dust-free and tidy. The letters were about two feet high, obviously part of a set. He spread them out on the carpet, and there were 18 of them, and shifted them around like anagrams. Hurt, bite, crag, chap, kz... No. Crap, target, chibs, huck? That wasn't much good either, except for the ch in chibs. He quickly assembled the word church and was left looking at rap, target, sibs. Foolish. He was squatting here playing idiot games with a bunch of letters while Vicky was going nuts out in the car. He started to get up, and then he saw it. He formed Baptist, leaving rag ek, and by changing two letters he had Grace. Grace Baptist Church. The letters must have been out front. They had taken them down and thrown them indifferently in the corner, and the church had been painted since then so that you couldn't even see where the letters had been. Why? It wasn't the Grace Baptist Church anymore, that was why. So what kind of church was it? For some reason that question caused a trickle of fear, and he stood up quickly, dusting his fingers. 
so they had taken down a bunch of letters. So what? Maybe they had changed the place into Flip Wilson's Church of What's Happening Now. But what had happened then? He shook it off impatiently and went through the inner doors. Now he was standing at the back of the church itself, and as he looked towards the nave, he felt fear close around his heart and squeeze tightly. His breath drew in, loud in the pregnant silence of this place. The space behind the pulpit was dominated by a gigantic portrait of Christ, and Bert thought, if nothing else in this town gave Vicky the screaming memes, this would. The Christ was grinning, vulpine. His eyes were wide and staring, reminding Bert uneasily of Lon Chaney and the Phantom of the Opera. In each of the wide black pupils, someone, a sinner presumably, was drowning in a lake of fire. But the oddest thing was that this Christ had green hair. Hair which on closer examination revealed itself to be a twining mass of early summer corn. The picture was crudely done, but effective. It looked like a comic strip mural done by a gifted child. Of Old Testament Christ, or a pagan Christ that might slaughter his sheep for sacrifice instead of leading them. At the foot of the left-hand ranks of pews was a pipe organ, and Bert could not at first tell what was wrong with it. He walked down the left-hand aisle and saw, with slowly dawning horror, that the keys had been ripped up, the stops had been pulled out, and the pipes themselves filled with dry corn husks. Over the organ was a carefully lettered plaque which read, Make no music except with human tongue, saith the Lord God. Vicky was right. Something was terribly wrong here. He debated going back to Vicky without exploring any further, just getting into the car and leaving town as quickly as possible, never mind the municipal building. But it grated on him. Tell the truth, he thought. You want to give her Band 5000 a workout before going back and admitting she was right to start with? He would go back in a minute or so. He walked through the pulpit, thinking... People must go through Gatlin all the time. There must be people in the neighbouring towns who are friends and relatives here. The Nebraska SP must cruise through from time to time. And what about the power company? The stoplight had been dead. Surely they'd know if the power had been cut off for 12 long years. Conclusion. What seemed to have happened in Gatlin was impossible. Still, he had the creeps. He climbed the four carpeted steps to the pulpit and looked out over the deserted pews, glimmering in the half-shadows. He seemed to feel the weight of those eldritch and decidedly unchristian eyes boring into his back. There was a large Bible on the lectern, opened to the 38th chapter of Job. Bert glanced down at it and read, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. The Lord. He who walks behind the rose. Declare if thou hast understanding, and please pass the corn. He fluttered the pages of the Bible, and they made a dry, whispering sound in the quiet. The sound that ghosts might make if there really were such things. And in a place like this, you could almost believe it. Sections of the Bible had been chopped out, mostly from the New Testament, he saw. Someone had decided to take on the job of amending good King James with a pair of scissors. But the Old Testament was intact. He was about to leave the pulpit when he saw another book on a lower shelf and took it out, thinking it might be a church record of weddings and confirmations and burials. He grimaced at the words stamped on the cover, done inexpertly in gold leaf. Thus let the iniquitous be cut down, so that the ground may be fertile again, saith the Lord God of hosts. There seemed to be one train of thought around here, and Bert didn't care much for the track it seemed to ride on. He opened the book to the first wide, lined sheet. A child had done the lettering, he saw immediately. 
In places an ink eraser had been carefully used, and while there were no misspellings, the letters were large and childishly made, drawn rather than written. The first column read, Amos Deegan, Richard, born September the 4th, 1945, September the 4th, 1964. Isaac Renfrew, William, born September 19th, 1945, September 19th, 1964. Zephaniah Kirk, George, born October the 14th, 1945, October the 14th, 1964. Mary Wells, Roberta, born November the 12th, 1945, November the 12th, 1964. Frowning, Burke continued to turn through the pages. Three quarters of the way through, the double columns ended abruptly. Rachel Stigman, Donna, born June the 21st, 1957, June the 21st, 1976. Moses Richardson, Henry, born July 29, 1957. Malachi Boardman, Craig, born August 15th, 1957. The last entry in the book was for Ruth Glawson, Sandra, born April 30th, 1961. Bert looked at the shelf where he had found this book and came up with two more. The first had the same iniquitous be cut down logo and it continued the same record, the single column tracing birth dates and names. In early September of 1964 he found Job Gilman, Clayton, born September 6th and the next entry was Eve Tobin, born June 16, 1965. No second name in parentheses. The third book was blank. Standing behind the pulpit, Bert thought about it. Something had happened in 1964. Something to do with religion and corn and children. Dear God, we beg thy blessing on the crop. For Jesus' sake, amen. And the knife raised high to sacrifice the lamb. But had it been a lamb? Perhaps a religious mania had swept them. Alone, all alone, cut off from the outside world by hundreds of square miles of the rustling secret corn. Alone under 70 million acres of blue sky. Alone under the watchful eye of God, now a strange green God, a God of corn grown old and strange and hungry, he who walks behind the rose. Bert felt a chill creep into his flesh. Vicky, let me tell you a story. It's about Amos Deegan, who was born Richard Deegan on uh, the 4th of September 1945. He took the name Amos in 1964, a fine Old Testament name, Amos, one of the minor prophets. Well, Vicky, what happened, don't laugh, is that Dick Deegan and his friends, Billy Renfrew, George Kirk, Roberta Wells, and Eddie Hollis, among others, they got religion and they killed off their parents. All of them. Isn't that a scream? Shot them in their beds, knifed them in their bathtubs, poisoned their suppers, hung them or disemboweled them, for all I know. Why? The corn. Maybe it was dying. Maybe they got the idea somehow that it was dying because there was too much sinning, not enough sacrifice. They would have done it in the corn. In the rows. And somehow, Vicky, I'm quite sure of this, somehow they decided that 19 was as old as any of them could live. Richard Amos Deegan, the hero of our little story, had his 19th birthday on the 4th of September 1964. The date in the book. I think maybe they killed him. Sacrificed him in the corn, isn't that a silly story? But let's look at Rachel Stigman, who was Donna Stigman until 1964. She turned 19 on the 21st of June, just about a month ago. Moses Richardson was born on the 29th of July, just... Three days from today, he'll be 19. Any idea what's going to happen to old Mose on the 29th? I can guess. Bert licked his lips, which felt dry. One other thing, Vicky. Look at this. We have Job Gilman, Clayton, born on the 6th of September 1964. No other births until the 16th of June 1965. A gap of 10 months. Know what I think? They killed all the parents, even the pregnant ones. That's what I think. 
and got one of them pregnant in October of 1964 and gave birth to Eve. Some 16 or 17 year old girl. Eve, the first woman. He thumbed back through the book feverishly and found the Eve Tobin entry. Below it, Adam Greenlaw, born July 11th, 1965. They'd be just 11 now, he thought, and his flesh began to crawl. Maybe they're out here, someplace. But how could such a thing be kept secret? How could it go on? How unless the god in question approved? Oh, Jesus, Bert said into the silence, and that was when the T-bird's horn began to blare into the afternoon, one long, continuous blast. Bert jumped from the pulpit and ran down the centre aisle. He threw open the outer vestibule door, letting in hot sunshine, dazzling. Vicky was bowled upright behind the steering wheel, both hands plastered on the horn ring, her head swivelling wildly. From all around, the children were coming. Some of them were laughing gaily. They held knives, hatchets, pipes, rocks, hammers. One girl, maybe eight, with beautiful long blonde hair, held a jack handle. Rural weapons, not a gun among them. Bert felt a wild urge to scream out, Which of you is Adam and Eve? Who are the mothers? Who are the daughters? Fathers? Sons? Declare, if thou hast understanding. They came from the side streets, from the town green, through the gate and the chain-link fence around the school playground a block further east. Some of them glanced indifferently at Bert, standing frozen on the church steps, and some nudged each other and pointed and smiled, the sweet smiles of children. The girls were dressed in long brown wool and faded sunbonnets. The boys, like Quaker parsons, were all in black and wore round-crowned, flat-brimmed hats. They streamed across the town square toward the car. Across lawns, a few came across the front yard of what had been the Grace Baptist Church until 1964. One or two of them almost got close enough to touch. The shotgun! Bert yelled. Vicky, get the shotgun! But she was frozen in her panic. He could see that from the steps. He doubted if she could even hear him through the closed windows. They converged on the Thunderbird. The axes and hatchets and chunks of pipe began to rise and fall. My god, am I seeing this? He thought frozenly. An arrow of chrome fell off the side of the car, the hood ornament went flying, knives crawled spirals through the side walls of the tyres and the car settled. The horn blared on and on. The windshield and side windows went opaque and cracked under the onslaught, and then the safety glass sprayed inwards and he could see again. Vicky was crouched back, only one hand on the horn ring now, the other thrown up to protect her face. Eager young hands reached in, fumbling for the lock-unlock button, she beat them away wildly. The horn became intermittent and then stopped altogether. The beaten and dented driver's side door was hauled open. They were trying to drag her out, but her hands were wrapped around the steering wheel. Then one of them leaned in, knife in hand, and his paralysis broke, and he plunged down the steps, almost falling, and ran down the flagstone walk towards them. One of them, her boy of sixteen, with long red hair spilling out from beneath his hat, turned towards him, almost casually, and something flicked through the air. Bert's left arm jerked backwards, and for a moment he had the absurd thought that he had been punched at long distance, Then the pain came, so sharp and sudden that the world went grey. He examined his arm with a stupid sort of wonder. A buck and half pensy jackknife was growing out of it like a strange tumour. The sleeves of his J.C. Penny sports shirt was turning red. He looked at it for what seemed like forever, trying to understand how he could have grown a jackknife. Was it possible? When he looked up, boy with the red hair was almost on top of him. He was grinning, confident. Hey, you bastard, Bert said. His voice was creaking, shocked. Remind your soul to God, for you will stand before his throne momentarily. The boy with the red hair said, and clawed for Bert's eyes. Bert stepped back, pulled the pency out of his arm, and stuck it into the red-haired boy's throat. The gush of blood was immediate, gigantic. 
Bert was splashed with it. The red-haired boy began to gobble and walk in a large circle. He clawed at the knife, trying to pull it free and was unable. Bert watched him, jaw hanging agape. None of this was happening. It was a dream. The red-haired boy gobbled and walked. Now his sound was the only one in the hot early afternoon. The others watched, stunned. This part of it wasn't in the script, Bert thought numbly. Vicky and I, we were in the script, and the boy in the corn who was trying to run away, but not one of their own. He stared at them savagely, wanting to scream, How do you like it? The red-haired boy gave one last weak gobble and sank to his knees. He stared up at Bert for a moment, and then his hands dropped away from the shaft of the knife, and he fell forward. A soft sighing sound from the children gathered around the Thunderbird. They stared at Bert. Bert stared back at them, fascinated, and that was when he noticed that Vicky was gone. Where is she? he asked. Where did you take her? One of the boys raised a blood-streaked hunting knife toward his throat and made a sawing motion there. He grinned. That was the only answer. From somewhere in the back, an older boy's voice. Soft. Get him. The boys began to walk towards him. Bert backed up. They began to walk faster. Bert backed up faster. The shotgun! The goddamn shotgun! Out of reach. The sun cut their shadows darkly on the green church lawn, and then he was on the sidewalk. He turned and ran. Kill him! Someone roared, and they came after him. He ran, but not quite blindly. He skirted the municipal building. No help there, they would corner him like a rat, and ran up on Main Street, which opened out and became the highway again two blocks further up. He and Vicky would have been on that road now and away if he had only listened. His loafers slapped against the sidewalk. Ahead of him, he could see a few more business buildings, including the Gatlin Ice Cream Shop and, sure enough, the Bijou Theatre. The dust-clotted marquee letters read, Now howing limited en agamen el Taylor Cleopatra. Beyond the next street was a gas station that marked the edge of town, and beyond that, the corn, closing back into the sides of the road. A green tide of corn. Bert ran. He was already out of breath, and the knife wound in his upper arm was beginning to hurt, and he was leaving a trail of blood. As he ran, he yanked his handkerchief from his back pocket and stuck it inside his shirt. He ran. His loafers pounded the cracked cement of the sidewalk, his breath rasping in his throat with more and more heat. His arm began to throb in earnest. Some mordant part of his brain tried to ask if he thought he could run all the way to the next town, if he could run 22 miles of two-lane blacktop. He ran. Behind him, he could hear them. Fifteen years younger and faster than he was, gaining. Their feet slapped on the pavement. They whooped and shouted back and forth to each other. They're having more fun than a five-alarm fire, Bert thought disjointedly. They'll talk about it for years. Bert ran. He ran past the gas station, marking the edge of town. His breath gasped and roared in his chest. The sidewalk ran out under his feet, and now there was only one thing to do, only one chance to beat them and escape with his life. The houses were gone. The town was gone. The corn had surged in a soft green wave back to the edges of the road. The green sword-like leaves rustled softly. It would be deep in there, deep and cool, shady in the shadows of man-high corn. He ran past a sign that said, You are now leaving Gatlin, nicest little town in Nebraska, or anywhere else. Drop in any time. I'll be sure to do that, Bert thought dimly. He ran past the sign like a sprinter closing on the tape and then swerved left, crossing the road, and kicked his loafers away. Then he was in the corn, and it closed behind him and over him like the waves of a green sea, taking him in, hiding him. He felt a sudden and wholly unexpected relief sweep him, and at the same moment he got his second wind. His lungs, which had been shallowing up, seemed to unlock and give him more breath. He ran straight down the first row he had entered. 
head ducked, his broad shoulders swiping the leaves and making them tremble. Twenty yards in, he turned right, parallel to the road again, and ran on, keeping low so they wouldn't see his dark head of hair bobbing amid the yellow corn tassels. He doubled back toward the road for a few moments, crossed more rows, and then put his back to the road and hopped randomly from row to row, always delving deeper and deeper into the corn. At last, he collapsed onto his knees and put his forehead against the ground. He could only hear his own taxed breathing, and the thought that played over and over in his mind was, thank God I gave up smoking, thank God I gave up smoking, thank God, then he could hear them, yelling back and forth to each other, in some cases bumping into each other, hey, this is my row, and the sound heartened him. They were well away to his left, and they sounded very poorly organised. He took his handkerchief out of his shirt, folded it, and stuck it back in after looking at the wound. The bleeding seemed to have stopped in spite of the workout he had given it. He rested a moment longer, and was suddenly aware that he felt good. Physically better than he had in years, excepting the throb of his arm. He felt well exercised, and suddenly grappling with a clear-cut, no matter how insane, problem, after two years of trying to cope with the incubotic gremlins that were sucking his marriage dry. It wasn't right that he should feel this way, he told himself. He was in deadly peril of his life, and his wife had been carried off. She might be dead now. He tried to summon up Vicky's face and dispel some of the odd good feeling by doing so, that her face wouldn't come. What came was the red-haired boy with the knife in his throat. He became aware of the corn fragrance in his nose now, all around him. The wind through the tops of the plants made a sound like voices. Soothing. Whatever had been done in the name of this corn, it was now his protector. But they were getting closer. Running hunched over, he hurried up the row he was in, crossed over, doubled back, and crossed over more rows. He tried to keep the voices always on his left, but as the afternoon progressed, that became harder to do. The voices had grown faint, and often the rustling sound of the corn obscured them altogether. He would run, listen, and run again. The earth was hard-packed, and his stockinged feet left little or no trace. When he stopped much later, the sun was hanging over the fields to his right, red and inflamed, and when he looked at his watch, he saw that it was quarter past seven. The sun had stained the corn tops a reddish gold, but here the shadows were dark and deep. He cocked his head, listening. With the coming of sunset, the wind had died entirely, and the corn air stood still, exhaling its aroma of growth into the warm air. If they were still in the corn, they were either far away or just hunkered down and listening. But Bert didn't think a bunch of kids, even crazy ones, could be quiet for that long. He suspected they had done the most kid-like thing, regardless of the consequences for them. They'd given up and gone home. He turned towards the setting sun, which had sunk between the rafted clouds on the horizon, and began to walk. If he cut on a diagonal through the rows, always keeping the setting sun ahead of him, he would be bound to strike Route 17 sooner or later. The ache in his arm had settled into a dull throb that was nearly pleasant, and the good feeling was still with him. He decided that as long as he was here, he would let the good feeling exist in him without guilt. The guilt would return when he had to face the authorities and account for what had happened in Gatlin, but that could wait. He pressed through the corn, thinking he had never felt so keenly aware. Fifteen minutes later, the sun was only a hemisphere poking over the horizon, and he stopped again, his new awareness clicking into a pattern he didn't like. It was vaguely, well, vaguely frightening. He cocked his head, the corn was rustling. Bert had been aware of that for some time, but he had just put it together with something else. The wind was still. How could that be? He looked around warily, half expecting to see the smiling boys in their Quaker coats creeping out of the corn, their knives clutched in their hands. Nothing of the sort. There was still that rustling noise, off to the left. He began to walk in that direction, not having to bull through the corn anymore, 
The row was taking him in the direction he wanted to go, naturally. The row ended up ahead. Ended? No, emptied out into some sort of clearing. The rustling was there. He stopped, suddenly afraid. The scent of the corn was strong enough to be cloying. The rose held onto the sun's heat and he became aware that he was plastered with sweat and chaff and thin spider strands of corn silk. The bugs ought to be crawling all over him, but they weren't. He stood still, staring towards that place where the corn opened out onto what looked like a large circle of bare earth. There were no minges or mosquitoes in here, no black flies or chiggers, what he and Vicky had called driving bugs when they had been courting, he thought with a sudden and unexpectedly sad nostalgia. And he hadn't seen a single crow. How was that for weird? A corn patch with no crows. In the last of the daylight, he swept his eyes closely over the row of corn to his left, and saw that every leaf and stalk was perfect, which was just not possible. No yellow blight, no tattered leaves, no caterpillar eggs, no burrows. His eyes widened. My god, there aren't any weeds. Not a single one. Every foot and a half, the corn plants rose from the earth. There was no witch grass, jimson, pikeweed, horsehair, or poke salad. Nothing. Bert stared up, eyes wide. The light in the west was fading. The rafted clouds had drawn back together. Below them, the golden light had faded to pink and ochre. It would be dark soon enough. It was time to go down to the clearing in the corn and see what was there. Hadn't that been the plan all along? All the time he had thought he was cutting back to the highway, hadn't he been being led to this place? Dread in his belly, he went on down to the row and stood at the edge of the clearing. There was enough light for him to see what was here. He couldn't scream. There didn't seem to be enough air left in his lungs. He tottered in on legs like slats of splintery wood. His eyes bulged from his sweaty face. Vicky, he whispered. Oh, Vicky, my God. She had been mounted on a crossbar like a hideous trophy. Her arms held at the wrists and her legs at the ankles with twists of common barbed wire, 70 cents a yard at any hardware store in Nebraska. Her eyes had been ripped out. The sockets were filled with the moonflax of corn silk. Her jaws were wrenched open in a silent scream, her mouth filled with corn husks. On her left was a skeleton in a mouldering surplice. The nude jawbone grinned. The eye sockets seemed to stare at Bert jocularly, as if the one-time minister of the Grace Baptist Church was saying, It's not so bad. Being sacrificed by pagan devil children in the corn is not so bad. Having your eyes ripped out of your skull according to the laws of Moses is not so bad. To the left of the skeleton in the surplus was a second skeleton, this one dressed in a rotting blue uniform. A hat hung over the skull, shading the eyes, and on the peak of the cap was a greenish-tinged badge reading Police Chief. That was when Bert heard it coming. Not the children, but something much larger, moving through the corn and towards the clearing. Not the children, no, the children wouldn't venture into the corn at night. This was the holy place, the place of he who walks behind the rose. Jerkily, Bert turned to flee. The row he had entered the clearing by was gone, closed up. All the rows had closed up. It was coming closer now, and he could hear it, pushing through the corn. He could hear it breathing. An ecstasy of superstitious terror seized him. It was coming. The corn on the far side of the clearing had suddenly darkened, as if a gigantic shadow had blotted it out. Coming. He who walks behind the rows. It began to come into the clearing. Bert saw something huge bulking up to the sky, something green with terrible red eyes the size of footballs, something that smelled like dried corn husks years in some dark barn. He began to scream, but he did not scream long. Sometime later, a bloated orange harvest moon came up.
The children of the corn stood in the clearing at midday, looking at the two crucified skeletons and the bodies. The bodies were not skeletons yet, but they would be, in time. And here, in the heartlands of Nebraska, in the corn, there was nothing but time. Behold, a dream came to me in the night, and the Lord did shew all this to me. They all turned to look at Isaac with dread and wonder, even Malachi. Isaac was only nine, but he had been the seer since the corn had taken David a year ago. David had been nineteen, and he had walked into the corn on his birthday, just as dusk had come drifting down the summer rose. Now, a small face, grave under his round-crowned hat, Isaac continued, And in my dream the Lord was a shadow that walked behind the rose. And he spoke to me in the words he used to our older brothers years ago. He is much displeased with this sacrifice. They made a sighing, sobbing noise and looked at the surrounding walls of green. And the Lord did say, Have I not given you a place of killing that you might make sacrifice there? Have I not shewn you favour? But this man has made a blasphemy within me, and I have completed this sacrifice myself. Like the blue man and the false minister who escaped many years ago. The blue man, the false minister, they whispered, and looked at each other uneasily. So now is the age of favour lowered from nineteen plantings and harvestings to eighteen. Isaac went on relentlessly. Yet be fruitful and multiply as the corn multiplies, that my favour be shewn you, and be upon you. Isaac ceased. The eyes turned to Malachi and Joseph, the only two among this party who were eighteen. There were others back in town, perhaps twenty in all. They waited to hear what Malachi would say. Malachi, who had led the hunt for Japheth, who evermore would be known as Ahaz, cursed of God. Malachi had cut the throat of Ahaz, and had thrown his body out of the corn, so the foul body would not pollute it or blight it. I obey the word of God, Malachi whispered. The corn seemed to sigh its approval. In the weeks to come, the girls would make many corncob crucifixes to ward off further evil. And that night, all of those now above the age of favour walked silently into the corn and went to the clearing to gain the continued favour of he who walks behind the rose. Goodbye, Malachi, Ruth called. She waved disconsolately. Her belly was big with Malachi's child, and tears coursed slowly down her cheeks. Malachi did not turn. His back was straight. The corn swallowed him. Ruth turned away, still crying. She had conceived a secret hatred for the corn, and sometimes dreamed of walking into it with a torch in hand when dry September came and the stalks were dead and explosively combustible. But she also feared it. Out there, in the night, something walked, and it saw everything. Even the secrets kept in human hearts. Dusk deepened into night. Around Gatlin, the corn rustled and whispered secretly. It was well pleased. Well, that is certainly spooky, isn't it? <laughs> I know that's a bit of an understatement, but the thing I really like about this story is that you sort of realise that there was never going to be a happy ending to the story. As, as you keep reading and you keep realizing the lives that these children lead in 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 gatlin and in amongst the corn um the corn stalks and all the rest of it you realize that none of them are happy that the the boy that got run over at the start was killed because he wanted to leave he had that suitcase he wanted to leave and that means that the he who walks behind the rose he who walked amongst the corn he was deliberately keeping the children there deliberately sort of saying, well, I might be this, this cosmic entity, but I, I need you here praising me and loving me as, if nothing else, as, a, as a, something to boost my ego. I think that's 
what the story is to me is it, it's sort of a story about the hubris of ego in a strange way. I also really enjoy how with barely 100, 200 words, Stephen King builds this parallel civilization in the middle of Nebraska. This tiny town where in such a short story you learn everything there is to know about it and you are chilled to the bone because it's horrifying. You think about how these people are literally sort of dying, killing themselves and each other because they think they're supposed to. This story certainly is spooky, and um, that is the end of both the story and my very brief analysis of it. Um, if you liked this format, let us know. Send us a message on Instagram or Facebook or anywhere you can possibly think to, and, and we'll say, oh, well, they liked it, and maybe we'll do one again if people like it. If people don't like it, we won't do one again. This is just a bit of an experiment, and um, yeah, let us know what you thought. If you want to find out a few more bits and bobs about us, you can find us at our link trees. You can go to linktr.ee slash lewis underscore brindley for me and everything you could possibly hope to know about me. You can go to slash ohiram for Danny, and you can go to slash shouting into the void for the podcast. You Through those links, you can find our Patreon, our merch stores. We've got two of them. How crazy is that? You can find all sorts of good stuff, including our YouTube channel, where we just just last night as I'm recording this, um, we hit 100 subscribers. So if you're one of the subscribers, thank you very, very much. That means the absolute world. Um, we like talking about nonsense and doing creative, weird stuff like this. So thank you for supporting us by subscribing and by listening to the podcast as well. Next week, we'll be back to normal. We're going to be doing The Incredibles 1 and 2 in a pretty standard um, Shouting Into the Void episode. I think that all I can say in, in preparation for that is that if you do wear a cape to listen to the episode, Edna Mode will be furious. We also have our Patreon at patreon.com slash shoutingintothevoid, and we like to take the opportunity every single episode to thank our patrons, so we're just going to do that now. Uh, so thank you very, very much to Dougie, Natalie, Richard, Aditya, Sophie, Peter, Darius, and Chloe. It means the absolute world that you are uh, sponsoring the podcast, essentially. You're allowing us to keep making this show that we absolutely love to make. It's great fun, and to see it growing and to see people loving it so much that they're actually willing to give us some money to help support the show, it is amazing. So thank you, one and all. You make the show possible. Both Danny and I absolutely love you for it. We also have a couple of sponsors for the show, and we're going to talk about a little bit about them right now. We're going to start with our new sponsor for this week, which is Cafe Hormozy. They're an online roastery where you can go onto their website, hormozy.co.uk, that's H-O-R-M-O-Z-I, and you can check out all the coffee they've got on offer. It's really good. It's actually what I use, personally. Every day with my breakfast, I have a cup of their house blend. It's really good. Um, if you go onto their website and decide to buy a bag of their coffee, you can use the code SITV5 for a 5% discount. And that would mean the world to us, the world to them. Go and check them out. We also have another sponsor, which is the wonderful Right Side Yarns. You can check them out um, in this spectacular advert that I'm going to play for you now. Danny, I've got some amazing news. Oh, really? What? I'm going to make you a hat. Thanks. But, but why? Well, because Right Side Yarns, who sell beautiful and unique wool, have recently released a new range. Oh, I've heard of them. Aren't they that fantastic Scottish business that sells high-quality hand-dyed products perfect for crafting with? They certainly are, and they're sponsoring the show. R really? Have they heard the show? Yes, and apparently they like it. Kezia, the owner of the business, has given us a generous 15% off code for any of our listeners to use. It's 
Is that why you've got Void15 written in your hand? It is! If you or any of our listeners would like to use the code, simply enter Void15 at checkout with a capital V. Great! Would I check out? You can go to their website at rightsideyarns.co.uk or check them out on Instagram at kezia underscore rightsideyarns. Fantastic! That's how you're making me better be good. That is a really good advert. I know I make jokes about crying, but genuinely I think our adverts are quite funny and quite good. <laughs> I know the adverts are nobody's favourite part, but um, I we try to make them quite light-hearted, so I hope you enjoyed those ones. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I know it's different to what you might have come to expect in your podcast feed, but I really enjoyed making it, and I hope you really enjoyed listening to it. If you did enjoy it, please do reach out, get in touch on social media, comment on the show, um, or shout really loud and I might hear you. Because I, as I say, I really enjoyed making it and I'd like to make more. Um, okay, well thank you very much for listening. It's the end of the episode now. Have a lovely evening and um, go and have a nice warm cup of milk after the spook fist that was this episode. <laughs> okay, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.